Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Emma Townsend. Can people in the developing world eat as much meat and dairy as people in the industrialised countries without destroying the planet? And do they really want to? Brighter Green is a public policy action tank based in New York that works to raise awareness of and encourage policy action on issues that span the environment, animals and sustainability. And they explore these questions in a short documentary they have produced called What's for Dinner, which is directed by award-winning filmmaker Jean Yi. We speak with Jean Yi about this experience and also Wan Xinzhou, an associate of Brighter Green and research associate in the Food and Agriculture Program at Worldwatch, about, in her words, the triangle of agribusiness carved out with China, the United States and Brazil. But first we'll hear a snippet from a former interview I had with the executive director of Brighter Green, Mia McDonald. As the Chinese economy has grown, as a history of famine has really imprinted itself on the Chinese people, you know, to this day, there's more demand for what are seen as higher value, higher quality foods and more supply, you know, both, as I mentioned before, state-owned corporations, as well as global agribusiness, you know, a, a KFC is very common in Chinese cities. Uh, McDonald's is opening a new restaurant almost every day in China as we speak. Big grain producers, Cargill, uh, others, want to sell to China. Why it matters for the world. So it obviously matters for those animals, for the people in China who also are experiencing water pollution from livestock operations, public health effects from overconsumption of a more Western-style diet. But what has been happening, again, in the past, let's say, five to ten years, is to feed those animals that China is raising in, in enormous numbers. It is looking for the components of livestock feed, and that's principally soy, soy meal, as well as corn. And so China is buying, growing, uh, and vast quantities of those on global markets. So just one one example I'll give is in Latin America, where soy has really expanded, whether it's Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, 
into forested areas, grassland, a whole range of ecosystems. China is buying, uh, in some cases, and let's say in the case of Brazil, more than half of Brazil's soy crop is now exported to China. And many of those governments and many of the agribusinesses see an almost uh, unending demand from China for feed grains. And, you know, even in the U.S., there's more export of soy and corn to China, not to feed Chinese people directly, but for these Chinese animals. And unfortunately, that story is not terribly well known. And the consequences, principally ecological, but but others on food prices, a whole range of ways that that will affect the global environment, the global economy and the shape of the global food system. We hear about food security in the mainstream media and at agribusiness conferences. They're harnessing their own markets, basically. Can you talk about who are the major players and powers that are at that negotiating table at this present time of international food business and networks? Yeah, I can. I mean, it is a big world and a big field. And I think there are a number of different conference arenas, Emma. So there are you know, climate conferences. There are, as you say, conferences about food security and agriculture, the future of agriculture. So there are a number of different um, places where some of these discussions are happening. But it is the case that there are large multinational agribusinesses, and traditionally those have been uh, developed, grown in what we can call industrialized countries, right? We sometimes say the global north. So places like the U.S., places like Europe, places like Australia, and New Zealand. And some of the names I think will be, you know, familiar to your listeners, uh, Cargill, ADM, Monsanto, uh, Louis Dreyfus is a big one. Uh, Fonterra is a New Zealand based, one of the largest dairy processors in the world. Um, and there are a number of others that we could we could talk about. Uh, there is actually now the largest beef processing conglomerate in the world is a Brazilian-based company called JBS, and they, you know, in the last several years, bought a number of other companies in the meat and feed sector. So become extremely big. In China, there are a number of state-owned corporations that are really agribusinesses, um, and they call these state-owned corporations that have very strong relationship with the central government in China, Dragon Head firms. And there's quite a big one called Kafko, uh, the acronym in China. So they are private businesses. But as you indicated in your question, they often operate with very strong support from governments, you know, elected governments, or in the case of China, not elected governments. You are listening to 3CR 855 Freedom of Species. We are speaking with Mia McDonald, Executive Director of the New York-based public policy action tank, Brighter Green. Brighter Green works at the intersection of issues related to the environment, animals and global development. The resources for the animal-based foods far outweigh those required to produce plant-based foods. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a real food security, if that was the real mission, one would decrease the amount of animal-based foods and really seek to increase plant-based crops and a diverse range of plant-based crops. So there is that factor, although I would say to your listeners that while the World Bank and the IFC are important because they set 
almost a standard or a pace in a way in terms of the global economy. The amounts of money that they put into promoting global animal agriculture in an industrial form, it is dwarfed by the private corporations and even the private sector investors. So just one more example that we have a very large investment bank here in the United States called Goldman Sachs, probably is familiar to some uh, people in other parts of the world as well. You know, they have invested in Chinese factory farms, in poultry production, very large scale, very industrial, very exploitative of the animals, the workers, the environment. And yet Goldman Sachs, it does have sustainability criteria. You know, it will tell the world we're really trying to green our operations. And yet those sustainability uh, commitments never seem to mix with an interest in making money from animal agriculture. And obviously, to my mind and many other analysts, that's an important contradiction and a, and a significant contradiction. Welcome to the program, Jenny. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking to Freedom of Species today. My pleasure. When you were very young, can you remember what you dreamt of being when you grew up? I certainly did not dream to be a vegetarian or vegan. You know, like many many other kids, I had a lot of dreams at different stages of my at different stages of my childhood. I think, you know, throughout my childhood, I spent my childhood in 1980s. I dreamed of being a communist. You know, throughout my education, you you know, it's all about this communist society we are all trying to build. So yeah, so back then, you know, being a real communist was my uh, my dream. But as, as far as occupation was concerned, I was first interested in becoming a lawyer and then uh, a journalist. But I never really dreamed of becoming a a filmmaker because. Uh, in the 1980s, filmmaking seemed so far away from ordinary school or ordinary child. You dreamt of being a communist because that was obviously the surrounding that you had. Can you just flesh out a bit what those values incorporated? For a kid growing up in the late 1970s and early 1980s, you were not exposed to any other ideologies or religions. You know, the only thing that you were exposed to was communism. And communism really represented all the good things that you can ever dream of, like compassion, equality, rights for everyone, and everyone is really taken care of by the society, and there's no war, there's no, you know, there's world peace, there's no war, there's no uh, oppression, you know. So anything, you know, that word basically represents all the good values from humanity. So that's why, you know, being a child, since this is the word that represents all the good virtues of humanity, then why not? When did you first become aware of the industrial-scale cruelty in animal agriculture? Uh, that came pretty late. I was very ignorant about this topic and I wasn't really interested in this topic at all until I think it was 2009 when Mia McDonald of Brighter Green, this NGO based in New York, approached me asking me whether I would like to make this film called uh, What's for Dinner? You know, I grew up in a small city, it's an urban area, so 
I hadn't really been to a farm. I hadn't really seen like how pigs or chicken are raised. And also, you know, when we grew up、uh, in 1980s and 1990s, I don't think we have that many factory farms in China back then. So that was something really、uh, very, very foreign to me. Until、uh, 2009, I started to、uh, explore this topic while in preparation to make this film, and during the process of making this film, and I was so appalled to learn about these all these facts, and and I said to myself, you know, how could I been, how, how could I be so ignorant about this topic that this, you know, this is out there all this time, and you know, if you Google it, it's online, and if you go to a place where you can watch a documentary film, and you'll see all this, but. But somehow I just, you know, I just block those information outside my own world, like many other people still do. Three CR Radio, that's independent, progressive, and making a difference. So I have one distributor in degenerate film in New York. So they introduce me to Mia McDonald, who wants to make this film. About growing meat consumption in China, and so Mia contacted me. And at the beginning, I was very hesitant. I said, you know, I, I wasn't really interested in this topic. Before Mia approached me、uh, four months ago, I, my wife and I became a vegetarian. We were not very sure either. You know, we liked the lifestyle, and that that's all. We didn't know how long we will、uh, stay in this kind of lifestyle. And then Mia contacted me, and and I said, no, you know, I I wasn't really、uh, sure that I. You know, most people who make films like this, they are already very much informed. They are very much engaged already. So I said, no, I'm not the right person. But then Mia was very persistent, and she sent me a lot of materials and and this amazing、uh, research paper that they did about China's in- increasing meat consumption. I was was really an eye opening for me, and I. I, I have always thought that I was someone who's very much concerned with the environment, who really cares about the planet. And then I saw this, and I thought to myself, "Wow, you know, how could I ever call myself someone who cares for the environment without even giving a thought about this very fundamental impact that every one of us is making on the earth、uh, on a daily basis?" So I started to、uh, read all these materials, and I went through. Of course, I got online and I. Search for more materials, and I said to myself and my wife, and we cannot make this film because you know if someone like me who claims to be caring for the environment doesn't know about this issue, then there might be a lot of people out there in China who don't know about this issue, and so a film like this should be really, really important for people to get exposed to this issue. So I told Mia McDonald that yes, we will make this film, but we need some time to do research and. And then,、uh, and also, I, I told her that you know this issue is very, very new in China. There are many people like me who don't know about this issue. So I said that I would like to have one condition if I want to make this film, which is I would like the whole crew to be Chinese. You know, I don't want people in China to think that this is a film made by the Americans, while the Americans are pointing their fingers to China, while America is. It's really a very bad example in terms of factory farming and the environment. So, and Mia said, "Of course, you you should make a Chinese team." That's how we started in 2009. After we make this film, I had a lot of different travels for my other professional work. So I didn't really did the editing. So Mia and the other colleague did the editing, and we. Started to really promote this film quite a few years later, and mostly last year. 
2014. We have taken the film to about 12 provinces in China, and we had about 30 something screenings in these 12 provinces. You are listening to 3CR's Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are chatting with internationally renowned film director Jan Yi, who is the director of Brighter Green's documentary What's for Dinner. What's for Dinner examines the environmental and social effects of China's rising meat consumption. The film has screened 30 times in 12. Provinces within China, and has also been screened at international film festivals, conferences, and universities. I asked Jan Yi what was the audience feedback from the screenings within China. The audience of who attended our screenings since last year has been very diverse. I would say, you know, from. Middle school students to like community organizers to environmental activists to college students. So there are all kinds of and also of course a lot of Buddhist communities around the country and also people who run vegetarian restaurants、uh, in different cities. Responses were、uh, very also diverse, especially the young people like in colleges. They haven't really heard of the issue before. Like I was, you know, in so this is like the first exposure to them to the issue, and also we realized that even you know five years after we had made the film, the issue hasn't really been discussed or debated still in China. Even the word factory farming is very foreign to many people, even to many environmental activists. I was very surprised because we showed the film in quite a few、uh, environmental NGOs, and I realized. Even people who work in environmental activism are not really very aware of the issue. So that was one thing that really made me think: you know, how much more we should do to really promote public awareness of the issue. When you were actually studying in the United States, Jun Yi, with your scholarship in peace studies, I understand.、Mm-hmm. Now this is going back. I don't. I don't know how many. That's a long time ago. That's the nineteen ninety-eight. You mentioned in a prior interview that you learnt there the universal aspects of, of of peace studies, and and what are they, in your opinion? You know, I went to the states to study. I went to the University of Notre Dame in Indiana to study in nineteen ninety-seven, and that was the time before the internet. Came to ordinary household in China. Going to the states at that time was really eye-opening for me. It was really a cultural shock for me. I can give two very brief examples. One is that when I went to Indiana, I was you know from Beijing. I was so surprised to see the level of consumerism, the level of consumption in such a small city in Midwest America. You know, I never seen. You know, that was、uh, I think a time when we didn't even have a big supermarket in Beijing. When I went into this big supermarket in in South Bend, Indiana, I was so, you know, I was so like, I had some such a culture shock to see you know this many commodities there. 
available for human beings to consume. And one thing that really impressed me back then was how cheap meat is in America. Because back, you know, back then in China, meat was still some kind of a luxury, something that you don't really consume every meal. But in America, I realized how cheap meat was, and, and especially chicken, you know, like chicken wings, chicken chest, chicken thighs. So unfortunately, back then I ate a lot of them because I thought, wow, this is like heaven, you know. There's so, so much meat and so... You know, back then I didn't really have this, like many people still today, that if, if I hadn't made this film, I would probably still be like that. That I never really given it a second thought, you know. You know, these are lives. How could life be so cheap, you know? And I never really give it a thought back, you know, I never really thought back then that everything actually has a price. That you, the fact that you are not paying the price in monetary terms doesn't really mean that someone else not paying, for example, like nature is not paying or animal is not paying or you're not paying with your own health. But I didn't really think about all this issue back then. So that's one thing that really impressed me as a cultural shock and also a kind of a learning process. Second thing was really uh, important for me going to this program is, as you said, this is a program in international peace studies. And I was very happy that I was in a program like that because you are then exposed to issues that you really, really cannot, even today, you cannot openly debate uh, back in my home country, like human rights, like religion, like, you know, ethnic minority, like, you know, peace building, you know, a lot, a lot of these issues that I've never really uh, was able to, I was exposed to and was, wasn't really able to discuss it openly with anyone in a public space. So that was laid a very important foundation for me to really understand how humanity, how society is organized, is structured, and, and all the political powers that are, that are at play. In the mainstream media today, we often, and I will use China as an example, uh, we often get exposed to China as being this one massive this economic giant, uh, even mm -hmm. across threat at times. And I, I feel that this creates a discourse that is unhealthy. Having mm -hmm. looked at your prior work, I feel that there is a conscious antithesis to this. Tell us what you think the, the texture and you would like that the signature of your work, what that actually is. Yeah, I have always been very intrigued by uh, personal stories. And actually, in the last decade, I have been I have been dedicating a lot of my, uh, actually the bulk of my professional energy into uh, recording unofficial histories of told by ordinary citizens around the country through oral history recordings, documentary films, photography, and theater. So that has been... Uh, my passion, you know, we have been, one project that we have been doing is called the Stories of Birth, recordings, people's stories of their birth, a conversation between the child and the mother. And as you said, when I went to the States was 17 years ago, and in these 17 years, this country, China, has undergone a lot of, lot of changes. You know, it almost feel like 70 years that you have, you have spent and I don't think that people really outside China have 
a chance to listen to、uh, stories from inside China because the impression they get from about China is mostly from、uh, media, from mainstream Western media, or is from、uh, the Chinese people living abroad, and. They don't really get the chance to know what ordinary citizens in this country live. It's it's actually the same the other way around. You know, I also met a lot of people from the West in nineteen nineties, and I thought, you know, a lot of people who did come to go to China. I don't know anyone has done any research about that. Maybe I'm wrong, but they somehow felt back then that you know all Westerners are are liberals. Because the, the, the Westerners that I met in 1990s, they're very, they're like very liberal-minded people. But then, when I went to the States in 1997, I realized that actually not a, not all Americans are like that. There are many very conservative Americans, and they're people of different political views, you know. So, so it's only after I really went and lived in the States that I realized, you know, that I start to see the complexity of a society. And also, kind of to appreciate that, because the society really needs all kinds of forces to make it more healthy. You are listening to Three CR eight double five AM, the Freedom of Species show. We are chatting with Jian Yi, a Chinese documentary filmmaker, world renowned. I asked Jian Yi to comment on a reputation that was built on flippant remarks I'd often hear growing up that the Chinese eat anything that moves. And I also asked him to comment on. The terrible famine that the Chinese experienced in the early 1960s, how it has permeated the cultural psyche in China. It's a good question. Actually, what you mentioned was not just a national stereotype; it's actually also a regional stereotype. Because in China, we actually, well, now, not you know, I'm not really saying we myself, but there are people saying, you know, people from Canton, from Guangdong, they eat. Anything that moves, so that that is you know actually regional also a stereotype of people who、uh, do not live in Guangdong. I certainly do not. I certainly do not agree with that. There are practices like that in in some regional cultures that eat the entire animal. Like ten years ago, when I visited Inner Mongolia, our local host treated us to a, a entire goat. But that was something that you know I don't traditional to their culture. That's not really something from the more mainstream Chinese culture. I think people today still, a lot of them still are, especially the older generation, like generations of my parents who were born in 1950s and who had childhood childhood memory of the of the famine,、uh, which is in early 1960s. For them, for these these older generations, they are very very eager. I can see that in my parents at least, or in my、uh, in their sisters and brothers, they're very eager to break away from their past. And a lot of times, they, you know, as as far as I see,、uh, they almost become very childish because they want to get something that they didn't get. So eating meat has been a way,、uh, one of the ways that they can break away from the past. Now you know, with the kind of financial resources each household has at their disposal, they can really consume meat every meal, and they consume all kinds of 
exotic stuff that they they have never even heard of when they were a child. So yes, there has been quite a phenomenon in China with the rapid development in our economy that people think, wow, you know, this is a way. This is our time. You know, this is like the whole world is the the whole world is at, at our disposal. And unfortunately, because、uh, a lot of the issues were not openly debated, as I mentioned earlier, even in like in higher education institutions. That people are not really、um, these issues were not really scrutinized by the public, and also I think that because being a citizen in this country, you don't really enjoy a lot of the rights of a full citizenship. Let's be honest about it. Like we don't get to vote. I'm almost forty now. I'm I never voted in my life, and and then a lot of things that you can really. Uh, enjoy as a citizen, you know, and really practice as a citizen. You, you cannot really participate as a citizen. I think you know the essence of democracy is participation, to being able to to being able to to use your own influence in the public discourse. But so today, what is left for the Chinese people is the right to consume, and and that's probably the only way we feel our own. We feel that we are empowered. That's the only way that empower empowers us. That you can consume. You know, as long as you have the money, you can consume anything that you can buy in the market, or even things that you cannot buy in the market. You are listening to Three CRs: Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are chatting with internationally. Renowned film director Zhang Yi, who is the director of Brighter Green's documentary "What's for Dinner." What's for Dinner examines the environmental and social effects of China's rising meat consumption. So, because you know, ethnic minority policies has also played an important role in the Communist Party's、uh, agenda. So, almost every university campus there is.、Uh, Hala dining hall, you know, it may be very small, but there, you know, a special kind of a place where halal food, Muslim food, can be served. But vegetarians have has not vegetarianism or veganism hasn't really uh, achieved uh, that status yet, for many different reasons.、Uh, one reason is that people don't really identify vegetarianism or veganism as one. A kind of diet that need to be separate from the mainstream and need to pay special、uh, attention to, and secondly, probably is so much part of the Chinese culture, especially the Buddhist culture, that you know people don't think that they need to、uh, single it out.、Uh, they, they just thought, you know, think that we already have. Uh, so many vegetables in in the Chinese、uh, cuisine. Partly, which is actually true, that we we do have a lot of vegetable options in the Chinese cuisine. And also,、um, vegetarians, because of this very heavy Buddhist influence, which is good and bad. Good thing is that you know people are very readily accepted as something that is naturally part of the Chinese culture. But on the other hand, many people would think it's very religious. And、uh, if they are not Buddhist, they would try to stay away from that.
So today, you know, people who are in the vegetarian community, they haven't been really assertive enough to in claiming their diet options in public places. Does it go against almost a, a, a Buddhism etiquette that you don't claim that, you just let it be? A lot of Buddhism practice practitioners would take it that way. They would think, you know, let's not argue with people because arguing is not peace building. <laughs> but, but I don't think that's true. You know, there's just different ways of uh, peace building and, and there's different ways of to show your, your compassion. You know, people who stay away from arguing, they also, they also actually, you know, I give credit to that because they are, this is also out of compassion because they don't want to engage people in, in violent uh, behaviors. But on the other hand, you know, if you look at the larger picture, you know, this is something that you need to assert, something that you need to, to put there on the public agenda. Do you hear of any of that assertiveness getting across, like in universities there? or Vegetarian or veganism is gaining a lot of uh, momentum in China. You know, when I look around me, a lot of people are becoming vegetarians or vegans, uh, or at least sympathetic to that. And I also saw that, you know, especially among the younger generations, people have been taking uh, a lot of actions to really be there and do something and try to prevent things from going from bad to worse. I think so far, by far, the most active members of our community are probably those who work to save, to help companion animals. We have, you know, you might have heard uh, there's this uh, dog meat festival in southern China. Uh, This petition uh, asks us to uh, people to to go there, to get there on the street uh, with a T-shirt uh, claiming certain uh, animal rights and, and just to show you know, our stand on this issue. So this is a very good example, I think, that you know, in China it's very hard to protest. So people have to come up with uh, creative ways to, to get on the street and, and express themselves. Where can we see a screening of what's for dinner? Have you come to Australia at all? I would love to. I wish we could go there. Yeah. I don't think, I don't recall that we had any uh, screening in Australia. But has, we have distributor in New York. That, so any organization or individual in the U.S. can uh, apply to show the film. Mm. And in China, we are designing a screening kit so anyone who live in China can comply to us and we can send them the screening kit with the film with with questionnaires with a lot of reading materials and also questions they can discuss but for Australia maybe you can organize something we'd love good. to show it to Australian audience especially as we know that there are a lot of Chinese population there That was Zhan Yi, director of What's for Dinner, a documentary that provides a unique look into the rapidly growing consumption of meat in China and the increasing industrialisation of agriculture. Through interactions with people across Chinese society, the film, including uh, pig farmers themselves, the film examines the impacts this big shift in food production and consumption is having on sustainability, public health, food security, climate change and, last but definitely not not least, animal welfare. 
The documentary isn't that long. It's about 20 minutes in length. So please, if you are interested in holding a screening or ordering a copy even for your library, the Brighter Green What's for Dinner website has resources to aid organising such an event or purchasing a copy. If you would like to help me, um, you've got an idea about where to hold a screening, you can contact me uh, through the Freedom of Species Facebook page. Dr Nick Rose, a well-renowned food justice advocate. I am absolutely no fan of the factory farming system and I think it's really one of the most critical issues that we face. And in fact, I've just just, uh, spent two months in Argentina where 66% or more of the agricultural land of that country is used to produce one single crop, which is genetically modified soy. And so if you can imagine a country the size of Argentina, which runs 5,000 kilometres from north to south, it's not a small country. That is a lot of land we're talking about. And the amount of destruction that's taken place to get that level of monoculture is frightening in terms of deforestation, in terms of you know forcing communities um, off land, rural depopulation. Uh, and then the production system is all based around chemical applications and spraying. And all that soy, which, which has a whole range of environmental, you know, it's spoken of now as a green desert, because nothing else grows there apart from this chemically dependent GM soy. And all that production, that, that soybean goes to feed pigs and chickens in factory farms in China and Europe. And, and the similar things are happening in Brazil and Paraguay. It's a, very, it's a very destructive system. So absolutely, I think we need to look at our diets and what's sustainable and the linkage between what we're eating and our environment and our social relationships and eating far less meat than we currently do. Australians love their digital equipment and that's all fine and good because it increases our quality of life but we need to think more carefully about what we're doing when we're finished with it. E-waste is growing at three times the rate of other municipal waste. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am Tune in and listen up. My name is Wanchang Zhou, and I am a research associate with the World Watch Institute in the Food and Agriculture Program. I'm also a, um, an associate with Brighter Green, a new based uh, sustainability think tank. When you worked with Brighter Green, you attended, I think, at least 10 screenings of the What's for Dinner documentary within China. Can you tell us where they were and how you think the experience was received by the audience? And did you actually learn anything from those responses yourself? Okay, yeah. Uh, Thank you for asking this question because... The screening tour was one of the most special experiences in my life. I think it was the June and July of 2014, and it was the first round of the screening tour of the What's for Dinner documentary. The documentary director Jian Yi and I traveled to eight cities and participated in 14 screenings. And in most of those events, we also screened Vegetated, 
directed by Marisa Wolfson. So we started from Beijing. We had a couple of screenings there, and then we headed south to Hangzhou and toured five cities in the Zhejiang province. After that, we went to Shanghai and had six screenings there, and then we headed back to Beijing. We also did a screening、um, in Tianjin, so eight cities. After the first round,、uh, people in other cities in other parts of the country began to show interest in screening the film. So. We developed a screening kit for local organizers, and now the film has been to Hong Kong, Fujian Province, Guangdong Province, Sichuan Province, and several other cities in China. And I really want to say that we were very lucky because we got strong local support.、Um, a lot of screenings were organized by vegetarian groups or Buddhist groups. And audience was more familiar with the concept because a lot of them were already vegetarians or were interested in trying. But we also had several screenings where the audience was more kind of randomly sampled, let's say. So、um, they were not particularly interested in this topic, but came to the screening for other reasons. For example,、um, our second screening in Beijing. Was in a documentary salon, and people came because they love documentaries.、We、also had a screening for middle school kids in a summer camp, and another one with an、um, environmental group. So the topic was not at the center of their minds, but still,、uh, we had great feedback from these groups, and we had in-depth discussions, especially with、um, groups with less vegetarian people, with fewer vegetarian people. I'd say, yeah. In general, people found both documentaries educational. Most questions raised during the screenings were around health impacts, nutrients for vegetarians or vegans, genetically modified crops, and food safety issues. To my surprise, the environmental aspects of animal farming and meat eating were not people's big concern, which is probably because they don't. Really see the animals and where and how they were produced, so they didn't tend to make the connection. Like even the environmental group we screened with, they were not familiar with the context because their focus were more on visible problems like air pollution and end of pipe pollution. Animal welfare was further down the list. Tell us how Brazil, China, and the United States are, in your words, the triangle of agribusiness. Is China at the centre of this triangle? In your answer, can you explain the exchanges of commodities that take place here and why? Okay. So the reason I wanted to describe this、uh, triangle is because the food system has gone global, and we need to see the bigger picture. It's true that China is at the center of the discussion, but I won't say China as the center of the problem. Rather, I'd like to see the U.S. as the initiator and the driver behind the factory farming production model going global. So, in this triangle of meat, the U.S. is a big exporter of feed and animal products, but more importantly, it is the exporter. Of the industrial animal farming business model, 
and the consumerism represented by fast foods and、uh, meat-centered diets. So it has a big influence on、uh, not only China and Brazil but also the rest of the world. So under the influence of the U.S. and its own history. The last two or three generations of the Chinese aimed at consuming like the American, and a lot of them believe that eating more animal products is better for the body because、uh, the commercials, especially that of the fast food chains commercials, are saying this over and over and over. So this drove the consumption up. I'm intrigued. Are the、right. advertisements of fast food restaurants indicating that it's a healthy diet? They they don't need to say it's healthy diet. They just need to say everybody loves it.、Yeah. <laughs> so, so for so for the consumers, they they probably don't go to fast food stores because they think it's healthy. They just go there because they they have fewer other choices, other options. You are listening to Freedom of Species: Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are speaking with Wan Sheng Zhou, an associate at Brighter Green, the New York-based policy action tank, and a research associate in the Food and Agriculture Program at World Watch Institute. The institute's top mission objectives are universal access to renewable energy and nutritious food, expansion of environmentally sound jobs and development. Transformation of cultures from consumerism to sustainability, and an early end to population growth through healthy and intentional childbearing. China's soybean import is now six times its production, which is striking、uh, given China's emphasis on its food security. About half of the soybean comes from the U.S., and the other half comes from Brazil, and. For、uh, Brazil, because of the huge global demand from places like Europe and China,、uh, Brazil is now like a colony of soybeans and cattle at the expense of extremely important ecosystems. We all know about the Amazon rainforest, but the Brazilian grassland cerrado is also heavily deforested for cattle ranching and soybean plantation. In fact, Latin America as a whole has been playing this role, and China also imports、uh, soybean from Argentina and fish meal from Peru. And Europe heavily relies on soybean from Latin America. But still, what we're seeing is not like threat from certain countries, but countries trying to、uh, produce and consume like the U.S. does. America has gone to to great effort to imprint this animal agricultural model on China. Can you just extend on how that was actually implemented? Yes, it's、uh, mostly driven by um, its uh, food businesses, especially the fast food businesses. So they came to China, not only bring this fast food、um, culture, but also bringing the whole production model. So that's how they established the factory farms in China. The fish meal that China is importing from Peru—is that right? That is to feed the chickens in factory farms in China, and that's basically supplying, for example, your McDonald's and your KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken chains. Is that right to say? 
Yes, I think that's fair to say. How much of the soybean production is actually directly for human consumption within China in relation to the amount being imported to feed the animals in animal agriculture over there? Globally, about 85% of soybean and 60% of corn are used as animal feed. And uh, for China, China produces some soybean, but it's mainly for human consumption. It's the import, which is six times the, uh, the amount of production that goes to feed the animals. And so in the U.S. and Brazil, where soybean production is much higher, almost all the soybeans are genetically modified and used to feed animals. Less than half is consumed domestically, and the rest is exported to places like Europe and China. Who is benefiting in this meat triangle, and in what respects? Mm, So... It's mainly the multinational agribusinesses who are benefiting the most from this meat triangle. Not small farmers and not really the farmers who work for multinational meat producers because these multinational um, agribusinesses often receive subsidies from the government directly or indirectly and they don't have to take care of the environmental destruction that they caused because the taxpayers uh, covered that part too. Can you tell us how, how multinational companies assure themselves the flow of commodities into country? Well, yes, um, in terms of getting enough cheap meat, animal products and feed products, China has been working hard to secure the supply. So the state-owned companies has subsidiaries overseas and China is actively participating and in some case leading the infrastructure investment in developing countries. So although it might not be the priority of, for example, the the Belt and Road Initiative, which is in Asia and leading to Europe in Brazil, there is a uh, transcontinental railway project that is going to link the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. And that railway project, uh, although it's still in the stage of planning, nothing is confirmed yet, but this kind of project is uh, likely that it can help China get access to cheaper uh, agricultural products from Latin America, especially from Brazil. Uh, The Belt and Road Initiative uh, is another this kind of infrastructure investment projects that that would open that would make it easier for the the flow through of meat and feed um i won't say uh, meat and feed because that area is not actually a big um supplier of meat and feed probably some feed but not meat so, like I said earlier, this import of meat and feed might not be the priority, but this infrastructure projects is likely to help China get access to the resources, whatever it is. 
You are listening to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are speaking with Wan Xin Zhou, an associate at Brighter Green, the New York-based policy action tank, and a research associate in the Food and Agriculture Program at World Watch Institute. Surely China will catch on quicker than the West has as to the overall unhealthy and inefficient implications of the animal product-centric model. Do you see signs of positive change? Yes, actually, I see a lot of signs of positive changes. For example, the urban citizens going to the rural areas and starting organic farming and social groups and entrepreneurs who promote plant-based diets and be creative in getting more people involved in this plant-based diet. And actually, every time I go back to Beijing, I see more uh, vegetarian restaurants and I see more small businesses of organic farming around big cities. And vegetarian societies or associations are also growing in universities among young people. So as we observe during our screenings, the younger generation is really much more concerned about the environment and they absorb these information really fast. But most importantly, they are willing to act and they're willing to cut meat from their own diets. So this I found really encouraging. So I think for China, it's actually easier to turn around than some other key players in this picture, like the US, like the Europe. And I had to say, um, including Australia, because let's not forget that Australia is actually currently the top meat eater in the world on the per capita basis. We're busy trying to export as much of it at the moment as possible. <laughs> yes. We hear about, you know, in most countries there's been a move towards the cities but you're indicating now, I guess, there's a move back into rural China as well with the in increasing popularity of organic farming. That movement in itself is is happening. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and those people, because they are more educated and they know uh, how to uh, take advantage of new technologies like social media to market their products, um, so they, I, I really... Uh, see this as uh, great opportunities in them. We hear dreadful stories of water pollution over there and what's happening with the intensive factory farms over there being on an enormous scale. The implications of the pollution is disastrous. There must be a lot of concern about that. Uh, yes, there is. But actually, this happens in a lot of other countries, especially uh, Latin America and also including the United States itself. Actually, for the, the really big animal producers in China, uh, like, for example, the hog producers, what they use uh, to treat the waste from the factory farms are better than the technology used in North Carolina in the cattle there. So, yeah, I think China is definitely aware of the environmental consequences of animal farming if they don't implement the latest, best technology. And there is social pressure on that. 
once China makes its mind up on something, it's, you know, the old that saying that if China gets a cold, everyone, you know, if China sneezes, everyone catches a cold. What's your response when you hear that comment? Uh, I <laughs> have to say, I guess it's, it's true because of China's increasing, the growing influence on the world. But I don't think the issue of meat, we really, I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to see China as a big threat because like I said earlier, it's much easier for China to control its meat consumption before it gets too high because the culture in China because China has a culture that doesn't really encourage a lot of meat eating. And actually, for me, I don't see people around me eating that much meat, actually. <laughs> so, The health part of an issue, the, what's good for your body and physically and nutritionally, uh, seems to be of high, high importance, which is a very positive sign to have. Yes, it is. Actually, it's the... Most questions are asked during our screenings about uh, the health uh, benefits of vegetarian diets and the downsides of meat-centered diet. So, and the people are not just asking, they actually feel that eating too much meat, they don't feel well. So it's not just theory and they uh, really feel it. So I see this as a very good reason yeah. for them to try something else. Well, thank you so much for your time, Wenxing. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> so that was our final interview regarding the documentary What's for Dinner. If you are interested in having a screening uh, for an event, that would be great. Please just go to the Brighter Green website or indeed the What's for Dinner website and I'll post those uh, with the podcast on the webpage when I post this program today. I'd like to thank very much Jean Yi, Mia McDonald, Wang King Zhu, and also uh, Dr. Nick Rose from the Food and Sovereignty Alliance. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter, or the website. Taking us out for a tune today is one by Vegan Smythe, and it's called Human Dairy. Sorry, it's Human Milk Dairy. It should be interesting. Have a great week. Jessica's scored a place at the human milk dairy. Although her teachers had told her that she'd never amount to much. Oh yeah, congratulations Jess, well done. And Jessica's in a great mood at the human milk dairy. All those milky mornings Ah, that squeezing touch You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.